Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cybersecurity issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. The cybercrime landscape has become increasingly fragmented as cybercriminals develop an entire economic system based on division of labor and products and services for hire. Dr. Jim Jones, who leads the Criminal Investigations and Network Analysis Center of Excellence for DHS, calls this phenomenon cybercrime as a service. Dr. Jones and his team at CENA are working hard to catch these cybercriminals. DHS's Science and Technology Director at outsources R&D to many centers of excellence around the country. Sina's work directly contributes to the mission of Immigration and Customs Enforcement's Homeland Security Investigations Office. Sina researches and develops tools to fight cybercrime and then transitions them to DHS use. Today, Dr. Jones is going to talk about what he learned about cybercrime and how his work intercepts cybercrime. He's also going to explain how cybercrime benefits the bad guys and the good guys, and why academics love it. So to start us off, Jim, can you briefly explain how your research arm supports DHS? Sure. So we are the um, DHS Center for Criminal Investigations and Network Analysis. We're one of about 19 centers of excellence that DHS has funded over the last almost 20 years now. And our mission is to conduct research of interest to DHS, and each center has its area of focus. In our case, it's disrupting criminal operations. And the other piece of our charter is to help train the DHS workforce. So we help train both the current workforce and the future workforce in academia. The research piece boils down to us spending a lot of time with DHS components and operators to understand what their problems and challenges are. We have a science committee that helps us assess the current and emerging state of science and technology that may apply to those problems. And then we as the center match up those problems with that science and technology and research teams that are in a position to conduct the work. So when the research teams conduct their work over a a year or more, eventually that work gets ready for DHS operations. And our ultimate goal is to transition that research product into something that DHS can use in order to do their mission better. So what types of projects have you worked on for the Cybercrime Center specifically? And can you talk about the way that they've impacted the Cybercrime Center's mission? We have, I think, 14 active research projects right now in our portfolio. Not all of those are cyber but a chunk of them are, and have maybe six good kind of clear cyber projects to mention. And these aren't all necessarily directly for the Cyber Crime Center, but they fall in the area of cybersecurity or or cyber crime. The first area is in the dark web. So the part of the internet that requires special tools to access, and importantly, from a criminal perspective, protects the identity of the sender, of the person at the other end of the computer line. So we have a team at Michigan State led by Tom Holt, and what they've done is they studied open and dark web marketplaces. In particular, they started with cybercrime as a service, but they also looked at marketplaces for drugs and personal information brokers, for example. 
And what they tried to do was understand the organizational structure of these marketplaces, basically who's talking to whom and who's buying and selling from whom. And they also looked at the economic variation within and between markets. So for example, they would look at the price of a particular good going up or down over time and try to understand why. And they would look at the price of the same good across different markets or different stores and try to understand why those differences existed. That project was primarily to gain an understanding of what these marketplaces look like. We have a, a second project in that space that's led by Marie Willette out of Georgia State University, and they're looking particularly at the marketplace for stolen identity goods, so things like driver's licenses and passports. And they're studying those over time to see how they're structured, but also how actors emerge in those markets. How does someone get into that line of business and how do they grow into a major player with the ultimate goal of developing disruption strategies. So how do I disrupt a particular marketplace or how do I disrupt a particular actor as they're growing in influence in those markets? We also have a couple of projects in the cryptocurrency realm. So one of those is led by Fotini Baldimsti at George Mason University. And what Fotini and her team are looking at is Given a bunch of digital currency transactions, which are anonymous to greater or lesser degrees, can I tell which of those transactions, essentially which digital wallets or which digital identities are engaged in criminal activity? So that team has taken historical information, for example, from prosecutions and seizures of specific digital currency wallets and IDs, that they can now say, we know these people were committing crimes. What are the patterns and features of those transactions that we could then apply to other transactions and say, these other transactions also look suspicious? You said something really interesting about that earlier, about cybercrime as a service. Can you describe what exactly that is? Sure. So a couple of things have happened in the, in the last several years. One is that the cyber criminal ecosystem has fragmented vertically. And what I mean by that is somebody will develop an exploit and a totally different group will distribute that exploit. Another different group will exploit the systems and steal the data. And then somebody else will monetize the stolen data, credit card information, for example. So cybercrime as a service is the idea that somebody who has built a botnet, a collection of compromised computers, will sell that to the highest bidder or to anyone who wants to use it. So as a service, they're offering the use of their botnet for a limited amount of time to say distribute a phishing message or to attack a large number of systems for a distributed denial of service attack. And so that's the idea that entities, criminal entities, are building infrastructure that they then provide for a fee to others who want to use that infrastructure to commit crimes. So this is like a whole underground industry devoted to this, basically. How do you jump in and intercept these types of transactions? Yeah, that's a great question. So the essence of it is we work backwards. So somehow we break up one of these networks, one of these operations. Sometimes we're just on the tail end of it. It was successful and all we have is the mess that remains after it's happened. But we do postmortems on these events and we look back to say, 
what was the infrastructure that they used? How did they get there? What flows happened that we, if we'd known to look, we could have seen them? So the communications flows and financial flows and others. And so we work backwards. And from there, we start to develop indicators. And those indicators are used to now watch this activity. And when we see all the signs of an impending event, we now know from our past knowledge that one of these events is coming. That's kind of a double-edged sword. It means that as long as the criminals don't adapt too aggressively, we're pretty well positioned to tell what they're about to do, and we can intercept that or intercede. And intercede often means contacting a provider and saying, hey, you're a legitimate provider, but you have some cyber criminals that have stolen someone's credit card and they're running a server in your data center that's being used for a crime or about to be used for a crime, please turn it off. And the providers generally are very responsive. They're not in the business of conducting crime. They're in the business of providing servers and moving bits. So it allows us to recognize the indicators and possibly intercede before a crime actually happens. So what kind of tools do you develop to jump in and make that intercession or when you're doing the postmortems, running through indicators and then using those indicators to kind of pinpoint where you see the next crime taking place? Do you use predictive analytics or artificial intelligence? We do. So machine learning in particular is very well suited to these types of problems. Machine learning in general requires that we have some known ground truth. And so over time, as we collect these real examples of cases, we can label events as malicious or not, for example, or criminal or not. And we feed this large body of data from various sources into a machine learning algorithm. And it helps sort through which features and which combinations of features at which levels actually indicate a malicious or a a criminal activity. And then we can apply that model to data for which we don't know the ground truth. And out of that comes the indication that this particular collection of activity looks criminal, for example. And then we can apply a closer look, collect additional data. One of the challenges that law enforcement has is they have the legal authority to collect data with probable cause. The problem is, where do I point that capability? I can't just monitor the entire internet. I have to know where to look. And these tools help us say, here's a series of transactions or a couple of computers or network communication that looks suspicious. We can look closer at this if we have enough reason to. So you also mentioned in one of the projects that for cryptocurrency, you're working on identifying patterns in criminal crypto behavior. What kind of patterns are you seeing and how are you identifying them and making that research accessible for DHS use? The way that work is conducted is they, Fotini and her team have a known set of criminal transactions. And when they looked at those known criminal transactions, they noticed a few things. For example, criminal transactions or wallets, IDs that are engaged in criminal activity, tend to do a large number of small transactions. They tend to hold very little currency in the digital wallet because they're aware that law enforcement can fairly easily seize their digital currency assets so they don't keep a bunch of money in there. And then finally, Criminals, cyber criminals tend to use tumblers or other ways of washing the money. So a tumbler is a tool that essentially you put your digital currency in, you then extract an equal amount of digital currency out, 
which is no longer tied transaction-wise to the original criminal activity. The way that we make this available to DHS is that those features are written up and shared with DHS. So DHS now knows what to look for. And the models that the team is building are shared with DHS. So now law enforcement has a, a mathematical or a computer tool that they can ingest the transaction log. So the blockchain for Bitcoin, for example, is a publicly available piece of information. They can analyze that and out will come transaction chains or digital wallets that are potentially engaged in criminal activity based on the model. That's fascinating. So are these three projects that you mentioned, are they currently in transition for DHS or are these projects that you're working on right now and aren't ready yet for transition? Yeah, a little bit of both. So these three kind of span the spectrum. The work from MSU is essentially complete and has been delivered to DHS as a knowledge product. So here's how the dark web marketplaces are operating and things to look for. The uh, work out of Georgia State is ongoing, but we talk regularly with our DHS sponsors about what that team is finding, the things that are of particular interest to DHS. So the team will bring basically interim results to DHS and say, is any of this interesting or useful? And DHS helps us understand, yeah, that's interesting, useful. No, we can't do anything with this. And so they can kind of shift their effort to the most likely fruitful efforts there. And then Fotini and her team at George Mason are fairly early in the project. So nothing's been delivered yet, but DHS is obviously aware of what that work is and what the goal is. So for projects that have already transitioned, what kind of impact are you seeing them having on the DHS Cybercrime Center? As a center, we're fairly young, Kate, so we haven't transitioned projects fully over to DHS except for a handful of knowledge products. So in the case of those knowledge products like Tom Holt's work and a couple of others, it's knowledge that goes into DHS that their analysts now have access to when they're studying a new problem. For the other work that's in the process of being transitioned or soon to be transitioned, what we expect to happen is that on the one hand, we will help the DHS investigators get to fruitful leads quicker. So they have a, a big data problem. And some of these tools are meant to tease out the pieces that a human needs to look at without the human having to toil through all the large amount of data. And then other tools are meant to help the investigators understand what they're seeing. So here you have a large body of data, you've teased out some potential connections, but the tool will help them make the connections between disparate points, essentially to connect the dots that then the human goes and continues the investigation. Do you see potential for cybercrime in the e-commerce space when it comes to online payments? Is that something that you guys are looking at? Absolutely. So it falls in the form of stolen credentials, which um, is reflected in a couple of ongoing projects. So, you know, in the e-payment space, if someone steals your credentials, they essentially have access to your financial resources, digital or otherwise. We see that ongoing now. We also see the potential for the cyber criminals to intercept the transaction. So essentially a, a phishing attack where they set themselves up as a false front storefront and collect money and, of course, don't deliver the goods. 
So what are some topics that you guys are interested in pursuing in the future? Cybercrime problems that you're anticipating DHS needing to address or gaps in knowledge that you've noticed and you're working to address at DHS? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the biggest persistent problems that law enforcement has generally, and certainly the DHS on the cyber side has, is what we would call the volume problem. So it's just an incredible amount of of raw data that a human couldn't go through even if they wanted to. So we focus a lot of our efforts on how do we build machines, computer algorithms that can help go through that data and make useful associations. Machines are really good at making associations, but making ones that are actually useful to a criminal investigator is a harder problem. And so we spend a, a lot of time working on that. Related to that is the idea of just discovering these criminal networks and how they're operating. So they spend their time below the radar. And what we want to do is learn what are some of the indicators or the signs that bubble up just enough to be visible so that if we knew what to look for and where to look, we could tease out the structure and the operation of these criminal networks. Ultimately, by understanding the organization and the flows in the networks, we can then speculate on how do we disrupt and eventually dismantle these networks. And that's what we're really trying to help DHS do. They also have a big challenge in terms of analytical tools and visualization tools. For example, we call this the complexity problem. So the machine can spit out this big page or pages of raw data that the machine thinks is useful, but to a human, it's not. And so how do you represent that in a way that a human investigator, someone trained in investigating crime, can look at and say, oh, it's that red line or that blue dot there that matters because of the way we've presented it. The data was always there. It just has to be put in a form that an investigator can understand. What are some ways that you guys are exploring to make data as useful as possible in a way that's understandable as possible for investigators with cybercrime. Yeah, visualization is a really big piece of it. So imagine a criminal network that has, say, millions of financial transactions. As a spreadsheet, that's not terribly useful, even if you sort it. So what we would do is we would turn that into a network graph. So a picture with nodes and edges and links connecting those. And then, for example, color code or use the size of the links and the size of the nodes to tell the investigators which ones are important or which ones, for example, are potentially criminal. If you add to that the idea of the investigator having some nice interface tools that allow them to say, for example, just show me the financial fraud that you think is here. Just show me the illicit goods fraud. Just show me the human trafficking activity that the investigator, given the data, given a representation of it visually, can play with it. So they can apply their intuition as they explore the data without having to be programmers or data analytics experts. I want to take a step back and ask you about what the cybercrime landscape looks like right now from your perspective and where you see future law enforcement needs in this area. Sure. So the cybercrime landscape is, and we talked about this a little bit, it's vertically fragmented in that the cyber criminals are specializing in different pieces of this. And that's because they require different expertise. They have different costs and different risks associated with them. 
So for example, it might be true that one entity is building and operating a botnet, not because that entity is going to do anything criminal past what they've already done to build the botnet, but because that botnet has value to other criminals. And so they lease out their botnet or, or sell the botnet for time. That's one thing. We're also seeing a lot of shifting in terms of the players. So the primary botnet operator one week might be somebody different a couple of weeks later. It moves in and out of different countries and jurisdictions. Sometimes it drifts towards a nation state. Other times it drifts towards purely criminal organizations. So it's the target space in terms of the people that are committing the crimes actually moves around quite a bit. And the criminal organizations as entities will move in and out of cybercrime as it makes sense for their operation. So if one line of business becomes less profitable, they may move into another. And so we see people move in and out of cybercrime as it suits their business model. We're also seeing the cyber criminals become more technically savvy in two ways. One is for their own operations. So they are using all the tools available and all the technology available that help them conduct their crimes and limit their exposure. They're also becoming smarter about what law enforcement can and can't do. They know what law enforcement can and can't do legally, but they don't necessarily know what law enforcement can and can't do technically. And they're becoming more aware of what those capabilities are. Encryption is a great, nice, simple example. The criminals know that law enforcement essentially can't break well-built encryption. And so they encrypt everything. And essentially that means when we we law enforcement intercept or acquire a device, if it's encrypted well, law enforcement can't get to the data that's behind it. We still see the criminal organizations being largely responsive, meaning they really don't change until they need to. If they're running a particular operation and it's profitable and fairly low risk for them and doesn't get disrupted, they won't change until they're forced to. And sometimes they're forced to by circumstances. Other times, another opportunity will come up that will push them a different way or law enforcement figures out what's going on and is able to disrupt it. But essentially, they don't change until they have to. But when they change, they're becoming more nimble. They're able to move in and out of operations faster than they used to. It sounds like there are so many shifting pieces and people in the entire cybercrime underground. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for law enforcement, but also researchers studying this to even know where to begin. Yeah, I think that's partly true. There's a thing about cybercrime that benefits both the bad guys and the good guys. And that thing is that the cost is relatively low. And by cost, I mean committing cybercrime, you need a computer and an internet connection, essentially, and then a a safe place to sit. So there's a a fairly low barrier to entry. If you compare that to illegal drugs, for example, you had to have a a growing operation and a transport operation and smuggling and everything else. Cybercrime is cheap by comparison. At the same time, the folks that are investigating cybercrime, it's inexpensive in the sense that we don't have to have a bunch of planes or boats in order to try to fight this particular type of crime, but it's expensive in terms of skills because the cyber criminals are able to hire and use the latest people and technology in order to commit the crimes. But a cyber criminal organization, organization A uses this tool and B uses this tool and C uses this tool. So they're each experts in the tool set that they use. The investigator, on the other hand, has to be an expert in tool A, B, and C because that's what the criminals are using. 
And so there's a, an asymmetry there that makes it a bit harder on the investigative side. On the plus side, for researchers like me and the folks that we work with, there is a, a wealth of information and challenges. And, and one of the things that we as an academic research community thrive on is good hard problems, especially data-driven problems. And I think we're fairly good at that and we enjoy it. And we're kind of putting our full resources to the benefit of DHS right now. You said something interesting about investigators and how it's expensive in terms of skills. Can you talk a little bit about why that is, why there aren't enough people with the right skills in this field, and how your work could be supporting law enforcement in that area? So part of it is the asymmetry that the criminals are using one tool each and the investigators have to know all the tools, so it's just a a scoping problem. We can help there because in the same way, we have academic experts, teachers, in each of these domains. And so we can use those experts to provide training to the DHS personnel in each of these spaces, but also kind of targeted training, right? They don't have to necessarily know all the way down to the chip level how this thing works, but they do need to know how it functions and how the criminals are using it. One of the other challenges we have is that a law enforcement investigator is also a trained law enforcement officer. And a piece of that is cyber, but it's only a small piece. They also learn the law and they learn regulations and everything else they have to deal with in the course of being a sworn law enforcement officer. So they have this multiple skill set. And then, by the way, we'd like to add this deep cyber knowledge to all these other things that we're asking you to know and remember. And so they're good at it. They're dedicated people, but it's a tall training order. So I think what our research does is two things. One is we provide tools that to the extent possible, we focus their efforts on the things that really need to be done by a smart human. We don't ask them to troll through terabytes of data. A machine can do that. We ask them to look at the leads that are spit out and use their intuition and their training and their knowledge to assess that for a potential crime. And then the other thing we can do is train them on the particular tools that they're going to need or that will make their job easier. So I have a follow-up question to that. You also mentioned that if cyber criminals encrypt something really well, then it's basically impossible for investigators to break that. Why is that? Is that because investigators just aren't as good at breaking encryption? And is that something that you guys are working on to address and assist law enforcement with? Sure. So good encryption, well-implemented encryption, a good algorithm is essentially unbreakable for everybody. So it's not just law enforcement's problem, it's intelligence communities and everyone. And that goes to the math of encryption. So most encryption schemes are based on really hard math problems that the computers of today just can't solve. And so if you don't have the key, the secret, the only way to access the data is by brute force, meaning guessing. And for a decent encryption algorithm with a decent sized secret key, we're talking about millions of years to guess it. So utterly impractical. So while lots of folks are interested in that problem, that's definitely beyond what Sina does. The piece that Sina does help with and where some of our research potentially would go is to A, poorly implemented encryption. So if the criminals were to choose a bad algorithm or a poorly written one, we could definitely help there because that's essentially a computer science problem at that point. But also keys tend to get left around on devices or on different devices. 
So for example, the criminal has encrypted their laptop's hard drive with really good encryption and a good strong password, but they shared it in a picture over a cell phone with somebody else who was also involved in the crime and we acquired that phone. So mistakes by criminals are something that we leverage. And that goes to our ability with digital forensics to recover and piece together deleted data as well. So the keys may be hanging around in places like that. So we're not breaking the crypto, but we're finding the fact that they left the secret key lying around. That's really interesting. So we're almost out of time. And there was one more question that I wanted to ask about how COVID-19 has impacted cybercrime this year and how it's impacted your research in this area. Sure. So the first thing that the cyber criminals did was they took their existing activity with phishing messages, for example, and gave them a COVID theme. So, you know, as early as last February or March, you found COVID vaccines for sale on the internet. They obviously weren't real and they were sometimes attached with malware. Sometimes they were asking for money. Basically the same old scheme, just with the new topic of the day plugged into the subject line. We also saw cybercriminals recognize the increased value of certain entities like hospitals and some supply chains. So we saw a little bit of activity where the cybercriminals would attack hospitals with ransomware. Essentially, a hospital during a pandemic is a, a much more valuable commodity than a hospital in normal times. And so that hospital is willing to pay more to get its systems or its data back. There was one example with a, a hospital in Czechoslovakia, I think, that suffered that kind of an attack. We also, we kind of expected the cyber criminals to go after supply chains more. They didn't so much, but that may still be something to come. And then the last kind of real quick pivot that we saw was the cyber criminals started attacking organizations directly because when everybody went to work from home, the enterprises had to open up access for all these people working from home. And sometimes that access wasn't done particularly well or securely, and the cyber criminals knew this. So they just started banging away at companies and government agencies, trying to get in, knowing that more doors had been opened. And there were certainly some successful attacks that way. They also started to attack more aggressively home users on the presumption that that home user is somebody working from home and has access to a business. And so they, they more aggressively tried to break into the people working from home. If I own their computer, then I can use that to hop into the company that they're working at and get access. They don't really care about the home user so much. They care about the organizations, whether it's government or industry, and they were using the home users as a vector into that. So from Cena's perspective, one is that we're certainly continuing our efforts to understand how the criminal organizations operate and extending that to how can we know when they have done a pivot and a retool to enter a different area of cybercrime, for example, or new players in cybercrime, or possibly they're moving out of cybercrime for some reason. So that's the detection of criminal activity and the understanding of their organization. And then we've also recently started an additional focus on supply chains. So supply chains have been important through the entire pandemic. They're about to be maybe the most important thing on the planet when we have about 8 billion people that we're going to try to inoculate against a virus. 
Sounds like you have your work cut out for you. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be bored anytime soon. Absolutely not. Well, this has been a really great conversation, Jim, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the work that Sina is doing from a cybercrime perspective. And I can't wait to learn more about what Sina is up to. Kate, we really appreciate the opportunity. We're honored to be uh, supporting DHS in this way, and we really thank you for the time. Yeah. Thanks for coming on Cybercast. Thank you. Dr. Jones' work at Sina is not only helping DHS catch the bad guys, but also helping prepare a new generation of cybersecurity professionals to brainstorm new solutions for cyber problems and anticipate future cybersecurity needs. To learn more about Sina's work, go to cina.gmu.edu. To learn more about DHS SNT's Center of Excellence program, go to dhs.gov slash science dash and dash technology slash centers dash excellence. To hear more about what's happening in the constantly evolving world of federal cybersecurity, subscribe to Cybercast and stay up to date on the latest cyber trends and insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. 